Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Fact, after Monday and Tuesday, even the calendar says WTF. <laughs> my name is Thomas. I do not get that catchphrase. <laughs> and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking? Dude. It's about 5 o'clock for you. So, first of all, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, WTF. Oh! I, I used to think I you were so now. sharp, Thomas. I don't Look, know. Sometimes my brain goes into, like, presentation <laughs> mode, and I'm like, how do I sound like one of those transatlantic radio announcers from the 40s, and I don't do critical thinking. <laughs> no, it actually— And I also don't do critical thinking on Friday afternoons. I saw that catchphrase and I didn't get it and it took me a long time. I just <laughs> was prepped. Uh, <laughs> um, That's actually pretty good though. Yeah. Uh, me prepping, you mean. Well, that too. It's a good joke. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Don via email. <laughs> and thank you for the catchphrase because we don't get very many of them. Yeah. We need more. Send us some. Please. Otherwise, I have to say like Mr. Krabs lines from SpongeBob mm. that we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, I'm just drinking, drinking Oma Gang Abby L. Dubell. I had a bomber that needed to be polished off. Same one. What about you, Thomas? I do have a beer, actually. Um, so our good friend Matt Givanisi introduced me to a sour put out by Dogfish Head. Mm. It's called, I think it's called Sea Quench, and it's like it's like limes and black limes, which I didn't know what that was, but apparently that's like a dried lime. Hmm. I was. Your marketing's very misleading because on the can there's just like it's a picture of a lime but totally black and I was like I have never seen that and I must go find one in yeah. nature but it's just dried limes but it's really good actually it's like a session very low ABV but very nice cool. very nice to drink um, and nice for me because I'm not really into beer that much these days but it's it's good so yeah I'm actually on the beer bandwagon with you this time anyway guys Today on the show, uh, we have a guest. Her name is Belinda Rosenblum. She's a CPA, wealth expert, and the founder of OwnYourMoney.com. And Linda, uh, Belinda, you met Andrew at the recent FinCon event, right? I did, in New York. So how was that? Because I didn't actually get to go to any of those master's events since I'm stuck in the middle of the country over here in a admittedly cooler city, but yeah, okay. lacking in <laughs> FinCon master's events. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot happening in Denver, but it's okay. Um, I thought it was a really great event. I mean, it was a it was kind of a last minute decision. Actually, I wrote a whole blog post blog post about it because um, in a lot of ways it was kind of an impractical decision. But I feel okay. like sometimes as entrepreneurs we have to really trust ourselves and mm -hmm. say like, what do we feel like is going? Even if it's a little bit uncomfortable, what's going to actually further our business, be a fun activity for us? And I just got into FinCon last fall and. You know, in terms of the financial blogger network, I've been running this business now for 10 years and I was like, I felt like I had found my people, you know, like we talk about kind of mm. having your tribe and I have, yeah. you know, and we, we often have different tribes for different things, right? Like I'm in a mom's group, I have my speaker group, but this was like my tribe of people who all care about empowering people with their money. Like here in Boston, I'm like solo. Like we have a few financial advisors maybe who are into it, but like when I mean, I started this 10 years ago, right? So the federal bailout happens. The news is at my house because like nobody else is talking about this. No yeah. one else can handle the stress that people are under about it. So so once I found FinCon, I was like, oh, I, I got to do that. You know, I, I want to be a part of this. So I'm in mm -hmm. the online group. And then and it, people have just been so supportive of each other. And, you know, we're really like furthering the message, you know, the message that like people can 
do more with their money than just feel like the victim of their current circumstances. And right. so I literally booked everything about the day before. <laughs> I booked the hotel at one o'clock that afternoon on hotel tonight. <laughs> I saved a hundred bucks. Nice. You know, like, There's lots of hotels in Boston, in, in New York. I'm not gonna like be on the street. So I was like, I'll, I'll just go with it. And so, and I just did it. And then I was like, you know what, as long as I'm gonna do it, I'm all in. So I went to the earlier mastermind session. That was great. Uh, you know, with, with PT himself and then, um, uh, PT money and went to the event in the evening. Andrew, of course, did an incredible job. Uh, he didn't pay me to be, to say that, but, that's okay. <laughs> but he will later. I don't believe it. Later. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, but, um, you know, just, I feel like every, all, each of the speakers, particularly Andrew, but gave us something to think about. You know, because mm -hmm. sometimes like we're so used to doing what we know how to do. And each one gave us a little bit of a different spin about something different that we could be doing in our own businesses to make more money, to enjoy our businesses more and really leverage our expertise in new ways. Yeah. Mm. Andrew, what did you talk about, actually? Because I didn't even know. I knew you were speaking, but I think the last thing I heard was that you you scrapped your entire speech and had to start a new one or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> PT called me and I was like, this guy, I was I spent like days working on this presentation, like super anal about every detail. Like on the twelfth, literally like midnight, the like the day before or like two days before, he's like, "No, this is I actually just want you to do something completely different." I was so pissed, but he actually forced me to do uh, like a good presentation. You pivoted very well, Andrew. Thank you. I, I basically told everyone to just like make something and don't like be barnacles on other people's businesses. Just do it. Just do it. And Scott, then there was a Nike shirt and it was like just a, a mime performance. And, and in other news, I did it because I was an affiliate for Nike. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah, go like buy Jordans. Andrew's got to pay rent. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You're that Nike. Andrew's ready to be an affiliate. That's right. Um, <laughs> I'll just sponsor the show. Come on, shoe dog. But uh, <laughs> so, so we, we met. And um, really liked Belinda, and we had a lot of great conversations that slowly, over the course of more and more alcohol consumption, I thought got better. Uh, and we're like, so we definitely we often do, right? Yes. And we're like, well, we have to have her on the show. And so we're like, well, what do you want to talk about? You just tell us. And you sent a bunch of stuff over. And I was talking with Laura, and it was it was really interesting because uh, we were looking at it today, and I, I felt like we're always prescribing solutions to the result of whatever you've effed up or, you know, like this is the how-to to get out of debt. But rarely do we talk about like why you got in debt slash try and fix that because if you don't fix that, you're just going to get back into debt. And so you right. send us this idea, rewrite your money story, um, and I'll let you take it away. <laughs> <laughs> Drum roll. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, it, you know, you nailed it because what happens a lot of the times is that we're only addressing the result that we see and we're not addressing the, sim the we're seeing, we're addressing the symptoms, but not the dis-ease that's mm -hmm. caused those symptoms. And then what happens is that we, we do tactical surface things that seem to correct it in the moment. You know, we find a way to consolidate our debt or we lump it into our home equity. And then until we fixed the core problem, we find ourselves three years later back in more debt, mm. right? We're still overspending. We've never actually even got to the point of 
how much are we overspending by or even a layer deeper? Why are we living beyond our means? And so when I start to talk about rewriting your money story, it's getting to the idea of, okay, you're living very much by default, like in this unconscious way about money. And I'm going to let you off the hook and have you realize that not only did you probably never learn good money management skills, you never really learned fresh mindset skills, mm. like how to be an adult or put your adult pants on, as you guys just said last <laughs> month. Right. Mm. And so, um, although my audience is often women, so I say, put on your big girl panties. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want all your male uh, viewers to put on their big girl panties. They, they so, may, and it's fine. Just, you know. <laughs> it's, all good. it's all good. Look, we're not going to ask. That's right. In fact, don't let us know. You do you. Yeah. It's all good. We love you all. So, um, but what I what I started to realize is that if we can solve it at the like where the original event started, that's now causing the next 30, 40, 50 years of behaviors, then we can actually start to not just keep living stuck in our current circumstances, but that we can reframe them to get on what I've termed our true money destiny. Mm-hmm. And so, but like so much of the time, we're just not conscious to it. We just don't realize our beliefs about money and how our beliefs are affecting our thoughts and our feelings and then our actions and our results. And yeah. so we, we never put all of that together. We only look at the results and try and just react. Well, how yeah. do you rest? And we say, wait, how do I respond and how do I fix it at the source? I watched a video recently about, uh, the guy called it default positions Mm-hmm. Which is like kind of like a base assumption you have about something from which you your a lot of your decisions stem, but they're all based upon that default assumption that isn't necessarily true. Like in his case, he's like this, I don't know, semi guru kind of guy who likes to do psychedelics and stuff. So he's just like your default position <laughs> is that normal reality is not on LSD. Uh, but how do you know that? Or or like if you take it to something more concrete, like your default position is that you have to be super frugal and you can't make money because maybe your family was like that or a mentor told you that you you, know, you never make more money or that you're going to just get a job and be secure your whole life. But that's not necessarily what's true. And if you question your default position, then you're no longer locked into a certain decision tree when it comes to more tactical things or the decisions that have gotten you to where you are. Well, right. I guess my question to you, Belinda, would be like, how how do you know or how do you uncover like the why, right? Because I spend like a lot of money going to eat, you know, what what's like the the problem that I'm solving that I don't know that I'm solving or how do you dig backwards to find that out? Mm. So, um... Well, you might just like to eat out. I mean, you know, that like I that's a possibility, it. right? Like sometimes it's about <laughs> that. Sometimes there are people who enjoy that. But I think that it's about looking at it in terms of is this a recurring pattern that you don't actually want to be in? You mm-hmm. know, like and and how does you eating out relate to the money that you're spending? Like if you have plenty of money and that's a value that you have is eating good food and you're conscious about, yes. Laura, this is where we want to be spending our family's money is on eating out. But I can tell you that I've had clients that until we looked at the numbers, like one family of five, plus they had a nanny uh, part time, spent over $3,000 on food. Wow. So like, like per month? Per month. Per month on wow. food. And when we started to oh get into gosh. it, we started to see that 
part of it was that somebody was going to the store every day of the month. And then oftentimes mm. even two to three people would be going to the store every month. Mm. And some of that was just this, this belief that like, it didn't matter that yeah. like they just had plenty of money and no one ever needed to pay attention. Well, and I have this oftentimes where I'll say there's a couple and the wife is my client, right? Or mm. in my group programs, I even do like a buy one, get one free. Cause I want the couple to do it together if possible. Mm -hmm. But in this case, like he was making a few hundred thousand dollars and she felt like part of her job as a stay at home mom was to take care of the money. Mm. And she's like, but I'm totally out of control. And she had quite a belief around, um, kind of like an, an unworthiness to have money, to, to hold mm. on to money. Mm. So what she found is that she would just spend it almost like it was a need to get rid of it Interesting. in a lot of ways. Yep. Huh. And yeah, so that was part of it. And then, um, what's the other part for her? She, um, she was trying to avoid confrontation was part of it too. So she didn't even want to have to talk to her daughters mm. and she felt like okay. she wanted it to be better for them than it was for her. That's often one that we see a lot. We want to, I have two young kids, a uh, two year old and a three year old now and a 17 year old bonus daughter, a stepdaughter too. And mm -hmm. so, um, it's, um, it's interesting to have the different stages, like, you know, living in my house essentially. Mm -hmm. And then to get that you want to give as much as you can to your kids, but you don't want to do it at the sacrifice of your own financial life and financial freedom down the road. Yeah. And, and I, I think a lot of times like a, a, uh, a desire like that to make the life for your kids better than what you had. It comes up when you're, when you're asking yourself, like, do I make X decision? Do I save this money or do I spend it on something for my daughters? Um, and we don't like look at the decision rationally. Like if I, if I save the money is life still better for my daughters than it was for me? Well, yes it is. Like this is something I deal with a lot where um, like I make videos for a living and I won't get videos out very often because I'm very perfectionist and artistic about it. And I'm like, man, if I rush this video, it's like I'm, I'm sacrificing the artist, the, like the artistry in it. But if I really question, like step back and question it, I realize, oh, there hasn't been a video in like a few weeks. So I'm kind of destroying the artistry by never releasing anything at all. Mm -hmm. And I think like you, you kind of get caught in the details and you don't realize that there's an overall trend that is harming your original intention. I think when we want to make things better for our kids, you know, you don't want them to suffer. And I, th I think that there's this weird problem where uh, like your joy in life is really just solving problems. And so mm -hmm. if you remove all of the problems and all the challenges, well, they're just going to be bored and unhappy and shitty people. So maybe you just want to swap the shitty problems for like slightly better problems where they're not scrounging <laughs> for food and eating out of garbage cans, you know, but maybe it's a problem. They only get to eat out like once every other week or something mm -hmm. or they have to cook once in a while. Um, what, what do you do with your daughters to kind of uh, not give them the golden spoon, so to speak, but, you know, empower them to have a better life than maybe you did growing up? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, part of it is that, is that I, I have, I take away the belief that says that I need to do things better or different than how I grew up. So I'm not doing things out of approving mm. or out of a have to for that. Like I'm just much more conscious to it. And so mm. 
Um, so like, for instance, Rebecca's two, so she doesn't really know. It's not like I can tell her and have her remember anything, you know, the next day, but, um, we don't, we, we don't buy all new clothes. Like we take clothes from, um, you know, hand-me-downs from my, um, husband's sister who has, you know, I have two nieces from those. And I think that sometimes like people make such an effort of it needs to be better for them Mm. that they spend thousands of dollars on clothes for little tiny people. Mm-hmm. And who grow who out of like, it in like who a don't week. Care. Who who don't care, <laughs> who like to get dirty, you know, and who grow out of it in like a week. I mean, my mm-hmm. kids are off the charts. So my son is three and a half. He's in five T almost six T clothes. Wow. So like yeah. none of, they're not even lasting a year, you know, like and then you have seasons in there. So like we just don't bother spending a ton of money on clothes. But I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many times I'll work with couples and I'll see what they spend. And of course there are expenses like daycare and all that that we have to work out. But there are a lot of discretionary places where we can spend or not spend. And so part of that is recognizing if you want to spend, what's that coming from? Like, what's the belief that you're um, having when you're wanting to do that buy? What are some common symptoms mm-hmm. that that you almost see like reoccurring cl- across clients where blah, blah, blah. And so they just blow money because I don't know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think I understand the question. And actually, I'm the perfectionist. I want to talk about this just for a second for you, Thomas. So that's also a part of exactly what we're talking about, right, about our beliefs. So there's probably mm-hmm. some part where you learned when you were younger that if you did things just so, you were rewarded. A lot of people have that. That's why so many mm-hmm. of us are perfectionists or recovering perfectionists, because we feel like if we do a good job, we'll be loved more. And at the yeah. root of the root of our desires is we want love and connection. Mm. So then the flip side is if we, if it's not perfect, if we don't do this beyond excellent job, then we won't be loved. And so once you can recognize, wait a second, that is kind of why I'm such a perfectionist. Then maybe you can do an excellent job and get that excellence can be better than perfection Mm. so that you can deliver more of your artistry to more yeah. people without feeling like you have to prove anything for love. That's a little yeah. bit, but that's kind of the example that I was getting to. Well, that does make sense. That when makes- I was a kid, I was pretty much expected to get straight A's and like I would be punished if I didn't. Uh, and I remember last weekend I, I picked up this book that was, it was co-written by like a Taoist monk, mm-hmm. but it was applied to sports and they, they wanted to write this book because they saw like in sports, there's so much of a demand for perfection and winning at all costs. And it's like the, the, you know, the, the thrill of victory, the ag- agony of defeat. And he was telling a story about how he went, he took his kid to a little league game when it was five years old as kind of like a preview to hopefully get him interested in it. And then they both left in disgust because they saw the coach yelling at a kid for not catching a ball at first base. And like mm-hmm. he pulled him out of the game and it's just like, okay, so if you're not perfect, you get pulled out of the game. That's the lesson you're teaching that kid. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a lot of what I struggle with is like every everything needs to be perfect. Even though logically when you think about it, like nobody creates something perfect every single time and nobody expects you to, but yet you still expect yourself to do it. Right. So it's having the awareness and then being willing to let it go. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people actually have quite an identity tied to whatever that belief is. Like you probably have quite an identity tied to you being this perfectionist. But if you can sort of um, like from a mindfulness, almost like a meditation standpoint, like step away from yourself a little bit and be the observer, be like, OK, wait a second. To some extent, that's had a benefit for me. So hold on mm-hmm. to that. But it's also had a cost. 
And so if you're willing to get honest with what that cost has been for you, then oftentimes you start to be willing to separate from it and let it go a little bit. Like, yeah. you know what? Like I thought it only had a benefit, but if I'm honest with myself, it's actually cost me a lot of time, relationships, maybe my health to some extent, you know? And so you can start to be like, okay, wait a second. I don't necessarily want to hold on to that in the same kind of way anymore. Mm -hmm. And the point you brought up about like the punishing, you know, like that's real. Like that has felt real for years, but the reality is that no one is actually going to punish you. Yeah. You know, at this point, like maybe they'll be like, Hey, can you fix this little tweak at, you know, a minute and a half? And you'll be like, yeah. okay, sure, no problem. You fix it. And then you send it back and then your video is done. And yep. so you might be able to reclaim hours back of your time every week or every month when you can start to let that go. And so it's, and I, I was raised somewhat similarly, so I can absolutely relate. Like I was an A student in, you know, growing up and in high school and everything. And I, even my CPA exam is a perfect example. So I took the CPA exam right out of college. And I, that was back in New York, actually, when that's where I used to live, when it was four parts and I took the whole thing all at once. And I, you need a 75 to pass. And I got an 83 to an 89 on each part. I come mm -hmm. home and my dad, I show my dad, and I'm so super excited. And he said, well, if you got a 90, you would have gotten a letter from the board of CPAs. Mm. And I was like, mm. oh, you know what I mean? Like he, I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it. And he right. was kind of like, oh, you were so close probably, yeah. you know, but it just sat with me for a long time. I mean, I still remember that that was 1993. <laughs> so, you know, it's like getting <laughs> that, um, that, that sometimes those things until we're able to get some distance and realize what that meant. So my mm -hmm. mom did the same thing. She was also like, you got an A minus, why didn't you get the A? And so because I've done a lot of this work, I even, I wrote a book called Self-Worth to Net Worth and I co-wrote it with a therapist because I love this inner game stuff that very few of us in this financial world actually talk about. And so one of the things that I suggest to people is actually when there are other people involved, like your parents and they're still alive, go and talk with them. Mm -hmm. And so I went and talked with my mom and I said, mom, you know, it felt like it was never good enough. Never good enough is a big one. You asked me to mm. kind of fall back to your point about common symptoms and what are some yeah. of those common beliefs. Never good enough is a big one. And so she said, well, I felt like my parents didn't push me enough, but they pushed my brother. And now, so my uncle is, is amazing and literally like, um, Harvard and he's the president of all emergency room physicians right now. Oh, wow. Like, uh, you know, thousands like, of people, all yeah. of them, like all of them, like the president. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so anyway, the point is there's, there's, he has a, he's an important big job, whatever. And so my mom pushing me was actually more about her. It was more mm. about her trying to make things better for me than what she mm. felt like she got because she felt like it was a missing for her. So people do that around money. She did so it around like overcorrect. Pushed me. Mm -hmm. So mm. then they overcorrect and they don't, or they just do what they think is with the best of intentions, oftentimes just correct, but they don't realize that we take it as overcorrecting, right? We take yeah. it to the, to the extreme and also we're younger then. So we're making these decisions. I mean, oftentimes our initial beliefs and stories about money get framed for us between the age of four and seven. Hmm. So hmm. maybe up to 12. And so you're making the decision with a mind of a six-year-old say, you know, you're not doing it with the mind of the 36 year old. You're still in that six year old mind who, right. you know, is in the game and gets kicked out because they miss a ball, mm -hmm. you know? And so 
so when I was able to talk with her about it and recognize that it's actually not about me, it was about her trying to make a better life for me and have me feel like I was, I really could do it. She was actually trying to give me hope and possibility and look how amazing you can be. But I actually took it as like, if I didn't get that, then I wasn't loved. Cause that's yeah. a very natural reaction for us to have. Mm-hmm. And once I had that conversation with her, I could reframe it. I could right size it for myself. So then I was like, Oh, well, thank you. Right. Instead of resenting it and being bitter and being mean and not feeling loved, I could be like, thank you for caring about me so much. Yeah. But we can't do that until we have those conversations and until we create a different meaning for people mm-hmm. in it. So, um, I have a, this class, the rewriting your money story class as a part of this workshop that's happening right now. And so I walk you through three steps to be able to rewrite that story. Do you want me to walk you through high level what those steps are? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the first one is to recognize what the pivotal moments have been in your life as it relates to money. So start back as far as you can. That sounds extremely difficult. I only want you to pick like three to five. Like, Mm. I don't want you to pick like every time, you know, someone didn't want to split a check or, you know, whatever. I think I can do it. It's it's not really like a moment in my life, but it's a period of time. I I guess. Like for an example that Thomas gave, it could be that game, you Mm. know, and it doesn't have to be about money. It can be money and success is the way I frame it. So you're saying just like things that made a big impact on you. Mm -hmm. Mm. And it could be things like you saw your, um, Oh, let's see. So for me, one of my things was that my parents got divorced basically from age seven to 11. It was like Mm -hmm. a painful four year thing. And I saw them each make more money than ever, but yet they had less to show for it. And they just had more fighting to show for it from Mm -hmm. what I could see. Right. As a seven year old. And so when I had asked them about what was going on and they basically said, well, you know, we're spending that money to fight for custody, you know, to fight for you, however they worded it for, you know, me as age 10. And so, but I took it as like money was pain. That was the decision that I made at the time, Mm. like make more money, you'll have more pain. And it was really interesting because once I started to dive into this work for myself, then I could also see that was where I kept myself. So there was some amount that felt safe. And then I, I had this almost like internal glass ceiling that I had put on myself that kept me at a certain level and that it was only once I could let go of that old story that wait, making more money doesn't have to be painful. Like, what is that about? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why does it have to be that way that then I started to actually make more money? And I think it's part of why people under earn in general, mm. like we're actually, um, when people sign up for the workshop, we do a, a little quick survey at the beginning in terms of what do you feel like you want to work on? Like earning debt, saving, And um, earning was number one. More than 50% of people said it was earning. And Mm. a lot of times people have a combination of a spending problem as well as an earning problem. And the earning is that oftentimes people are under earning because they're stuck in the beliefs that they formed back in these pivotal money moments, Mm. you know, money events that happened in their lives. Do you think the spending problem also comes from that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, cause it's, and then it, it can go, if you have kids, it can go back to some of the topics that we talked about in terms of children yeah. that you're overcompensating a lot of times. And so you spend because you don't want to say no to them. So mm-hmm. like I have a, a client who's actually now a coach in my Academy and it was a big deal when her girls were, um, just three daughters, two of them were in high school getting ready to go to college and they wanted new computers. And she's like, so what do I do? Like, I don't have an extra thousand and two thousand dollars lying around and I said okay we want to get them new computers by the time they go to college 
So we had um, less than a year, it was about nine months until they graduated. So I said, let's set a goal for nine months. You're going to save X and they need to save Y. So they each needed to save a portion of the money. Mm -hmm. And then we got there. She had her part saved, which was only a half of it, essentially. And then they had worked to be able to have the other half. And I can tell you that they were so much happier knowing that they contributed to that. They've taken better care of it because it Mm -hmm. wasn't just like a gift from the parents. You know, and it's so interesting that the conclusion originally was I'm going to be a bad mom if I don't get this for her. Yeah. Yeah, The meaning we're putting to our purchases. Mm -hmm. And so I helped to reframe that. And literally it's like a daily reframing in my, in my life, you know, for my clients and stuff. Um, I helped to reframe it to say, wait a second, you can empower them to get that if they want something that's more important and expensive to them, that they don't just come to you as the mom, she's a single mom, her husband had passed away, that um, they can't just come to you to get it, that they can actually be a part of the solution. And that then created a new pivotal moment for them. I'm sure like if they look back now, 20 years, this is now a shift where she's essentially changing the legacy that she's leaving for them and how they're viewing money. And yeah. it's part of the, the power that we have as parents and even as individuals to change the legacy that we're leaving and not from a, what the legacy was bad, you know, but really getting that I can make it even better. You know, a lot of what I do is just taking away the judgment and the shame around Mm. it all. And so there's this unwritten agreement almost that we end up having to our parents that says, well, I'm not going to be that much better than you or that much different than you, because if I am, then it may mean that I don't love you or that I don't love the way that you did things. And so it's bringing all these things into the light. Like imagine you're just in this dark room and then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, wait, instead of bumping into furniture and falling over, let's just turn the light on, see where everything is, get the lay of the land and then walk around the furniture, you know, make the decisions with a lot more intention and attention than you ever have before, because you can see what's really there. And it's often under the surface, but you can see what's really there. Mm -hmm. Growing up, especially in my teenage years, my dad lost his job several times and usually it was, or I I think every time was just not his fault. Like the company went under or 2008 happened or like the, the boss's kid did some sort of nepotism thing or something. I don't know. It was always like something out of his control. And this kind of ingrained this idea into me is like, I have to work super extra hard so I never have to deal with that. And like, I basically have to make myself so indispensable that I could never be let go like that. And I never really thought about it this way, but since I ended up in entrepreneurship, there's no real boss that can fire me, but I've always had trouble like letting go of things that I do. And anytime I get into something new, there's this automatic assumption that I'm going to do that forever. And like, it's never like an experiment. Like I'm just going to experiment with podcasts. Like, no, you're just going to keep doing that. And of course you can't let go of the things you did before that. As a trade-off, you just keep doing it all. I think there might have been like some ingrained loss aversion there from that experience. Like I never want to let anything go because that's losing it and potentially like losing out and and losing standing and then having to build back, which is something that I think I just like subconsciously avoid at all costs. Completely. I mean, how was that for you when you were a child and you watched this happen with your dad? You watched him lose his job for ways that 
he like he could perceive as kind of a victim. You know, other it was decisions that other people made. I mean, I was laid yeah. off twice, not because of me, but like I, I worked for Arthur Anderson. Like yeah. the whole company folded, you know, and then it was dismissed, but it didn't matter. Like we all mm-hmm. lost our jobs. But like I didn't take that as a, a sentence for me. Instead, I actually had four job offers and I pinged them against each other and I got over a 40 percent raise. You know, mm-hmm. so so we can choose to look at the things that happened to us in different ways. But how like how was that for you as a child watching that happen to your dad and to your family? I mean, it was tough, I guess, like. I mean, I always like really respected my dad and thought he was really smart. So I kind of had just had this assumption that he would figure it out eventually. But there was still like sometimes a period of a couple of months where he was looking and I was just like, that's really frustrating. And I don't ever want to have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And maybe I will someday anyway. But th- I think that like that shaped a lot of my decisions. Right. So that's that's actually a great example, because I would bet that that was part of where your head was at consciously or unconsciously around becoming an entrepreneur. And that it is mm. interesting because I mean, I, um, I used to work for, you know, this big firm and they made decisions for me. Like I, I, when I was in New York, I worked really hard and I, I have a whole thing about working hard, but we'll see if we get to that. I think most people have things about working hard too. And, um, they had said to me, no, you can't take this vacation because I had one of the biggest clients in the office. They said, because we need you to help us prepare for the audit committee. And I was like, but my family is going on this vacation. And they're like, reschedule it. And so wow. I think that was one of my moments that mm. was like, well, you know, what am I going to do about that? You know, like, mm. how do I, I was watching these, the, the parents not be able to be home for the soccer practices or, you know, their kids and just getting like, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to stick with this forever and have the family that I want. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was my version. And so there was probably some piece of that where you saw that and you said, you know what? I love my dad. I don't want to see him suffer like that. I don't want to see my family suffer the way that we did in terms of seeing him like that. And probably there were things that you guys couldn't afford in that time because you didn't have the money coming in. And so you said, I'm just going to take it in my own hands. So yeah. that, that you were so, um, protected, right. From that happening again. And in a lot of ways, entrepreneurship is actually riskier in some ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> this, this was a big eye opening thing for me. Like I, I started this business 10 years ago and I was very used to getting paychecks every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about working in a job is that you actually like negotiate it once, maybe annually. But generally, you know, start once in the beginning and then every two weeks you keep getting a check in the mail or money gets deposited into your bank account. And then all of a sudden you're an entrepreneur and it totally stops. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like every dollar that you want that comes in, you essentially have to ask for. Yeah. And it's like totally different. So in a lot of ways, entrepreneurship is a little bit riskier, except it puts a lot more power back in your hands. Right. right. It's a lot more power. Like if you want to earn more then you go and you deliver more value to more people, you get paid more. Mm-hmm. Right. So no one else is going to decide if you're going to eat this week. Right. You decide because it's how much work you're going to go and do. Yep. And so so I think it's it's great that you brought that up and then you can start to realize, OK, wait a second. How do I take. So let's move on to step two. OK, so number one is mm-hmm. identify those three to five events. Then we're going to choose one. And then you look, so step two is looking at the conclusions that you drew based on what happened. Okay. And that's what you started to tease out naturally in our conversation. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that gets a little bit into you being ingrained for the loss aversion in terms of not wanting it to happen to you. And then you take the third step, which is what else could it mean? 
And so like make a big list, like at least 10 things of like, well, what else could it have meant that that happened and how he um, addressed it? Hmm. And so then you can start to reframe it in a way that can be so positive. And it can be like, he had a lot of courage. You know, he didn't settle. He waited until he could find something. So you can keep reframing it until, I mean, we're meaning making machines. We're looking for meaning everywhere in our lives. And so if we can use those muscles to reframe it now in a more positive way, we take off the hold that these non-supported beliefs have had on us when they were in the darkness Mm -hmm. and they were living in the shadows. And so kind of like I said, we turn on the light, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, that's what I was doing. But now, and sometimes it sounds a little bit um, heady, like I'm giving you kind of very practical steps, but Mm. keep in mind, I'm originally a CPA. So like everything I do, there's very much (laughs) this like practical side and then there's the emotional side, right? So it's like even even the emotional things, we're going to learn how to take the emotion out so that you can learn how to look at your numbers and just have them be numbers, like have them be a black and white without Mm -hmm. them having a ton of meaning. Because then you can make changes with a clear head. You can make wiser decisions when you don't feel like you're on this um, downward spiral, right? right? This like scarcity loop that a lot of people are on. And I teach that too in the in the workshop, kind of how you can choose the scarcity loop, which most people are on, which is based in fear and anxiety, or you can instead go to this abundance loop, which has you make wiser decisions and be more graced on, um, grounded in gratitude and the prosperity that's possible for you. Can you, yeah. can you say something? Oh, well, cause you had brought this working hard piece. And now there's like a whole backstory to that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm very intrigued because uh, I know some people who really just go far above and beyond to literally painting themselves uh, when it's not necessary. And I know I could be a bit of a workaholic myself. Uh, Thomas, I have no doubt. I'm probably everyone on this call has a bit of a workaholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has, and this, you know, it has its its pros and its cons mm. when you have the kind of a behavior. And mm. the working hard is often kind of related to the perfectionist piece that we touched on earlier, because oftentimes the working hard either yields better results. So then we feel like we get more rewarded and we get more loved, or we feel like we need to prove something around the worthiness piece. Like, yes, we're worth your love. Look at the results I've created. Look at how hard I work. Mm. And as you know, I think, I think I actually took on this mission for myself because I felt like for me to be able to teach it from a very clean place, I need to be quite in touch with my own stuff. Otherwise, I'm going to end up projecting my beliefs on other people. Right. Right. And so around the working hard, I I had just realized that that was some of what I saw my parents do. Like my dad had, I don't know, anywhere from four jobs at any given time. Like he was, he worked at the parking violations bureau. He was an arbitrator. He was a professor at a big university in New York. He was a chairman of the department. Like he just had all these different jobs. And so somewhere it was like, Oh, I have to work really hard. Like that's the way I have to do it. And I remember when I first earned in a corporate job more than he did, and I didn't have four jobs. I just had one. And even that moment was like, I have to be okay with this. And some people will cap themselves because they'll have this unwritten agreement, you know, or un- unconscious agreement to not want to somehow dishonor them. Mm-hmm. And what you come to realize when you get into this work and it doesn't even have to be like so hard Like that's why I teach it in this class to make it more accessible, this free class. And then there are ways to go deeper, obviously, on it and really tackle the whole story. I 
call it taking you from a warrior story to a warrior story, mm-hmm. right? Most people are in the worrying instead of becoming the warrior, the strength and the stronger warrior. And so to recognize like, where is the working hard from for you? Like, why do you feel this need to work hard? Cause it's one thing, like if you work hard and you feel like you're in control of the working hard for many people, the working hard is not actually necessary. So people actually even unconsciously make it harder on themselves. Well, to elaborate. Almost, like, so what, what do you mean? Like the working hard is not necessary. Like they've worked to the point that uh, they've gotten maximum returns and they just spin their wheels because they feel that that's necessary. Yeah. Or it could be um, like by you're ready to go. It's five 30. You could stop. Hmm. Yeah. Stop working. You know, you've had a solid day. You got some great things done, but there's just this feeling of never enough. I have to work harder. Yeah. You know, like I I don't, I don't deserve to get off at five 30. I have to work until seven or Mm -hmm. eight or nine. Right. Or let me take a dinner break and then let me come back and work. It's like, wait, time out. Like, why are we working? You know, why are we working that hard? Your parents told you like be the first person in last person out. And then Mm -hmm. everyone thinks that. So Right. And then yeah. even when, when you, <laughs> the, the ironic part is when you run your own business, you're the only person yeah. in yep. or out. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not like you don't have anybody else to kind of gauge yourself to. Yeah. Right. So it's up to you to consciously say, I'm done. Like this is good enough. And there's something huge to say good is good enough sometimes. Well, mm-hmm. let's say that then you get past that piece that like you can appreciate that you've done at least, you know, one meaningful thing, worked your day, and then you can go home. But then there's all these other people on your team and other teams that are holding on to the belief that you just let go of. And now you feel like, well, I'm a slacker because there they are, even if they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs. So how do you then detach from that piece? Well, are you talking like team, like corporate team? Like, yeah. are you talking like in our, in our role where like our team is all virtual and well, look I, right now you guys are on my team. Uh, okay. but, but I also have a day job and yeah. when I go there, there are people who might just stay and, you know, maybe they have something to do at seven 30 and it just is easier to stay in the office, mm-hmm. you know? And so maybe they're working, maybe they're not, whatever. But I almost feel like as people stay, it like almost shackles other people to stay because right. you don't mm-hmm. want to, you don't want to be the first to leave or I don't know. Like, so, so so like that's a perfect example where you could just sit down and have a conversation about it. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. is this what you all want? Like I see everybody working till seven. Is that what you want? And then it's so interesting because I would bet if you had that kind of conversation and be like, well, we're here, Andrew, because you're here. And you're like, well, I'm here because you're here. Like, does anybody really (laughs) want to be working until seven 30? And they'll be like, no. Okay. Let's go get a beer, you know? And then you'll, you'll get like, that this is where, you know, communication is so important and that you're not necessarily like concluding things without having a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, we're constantly making meaning out of things. And my husband and I are kind of enlightened with some of this stuff. So when we see like the other person acting a little odd or like mean almost, you know what I mean? Like just not your normal friendly self. I'll actually ask him, honey, is it something that I did or are you just in a bad mood? Mm. And then that way I don't have to take it on that it's something I did. So I can tell you there are lots of friends of mine who are wives who like walk around on eggshells because their husband is like in a bad mood. And I'm like, just ask. Yeah. Right. So in this case with you at work, like just ask, hey, guys, let's let's have a conversation for a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. 
Like how much work do you actually have? And if you, if you run the department or if you run the company, Andrew, then, you know, you can even have that conversation to like, what's the life we actually want? Right. Cause I think so much of the time we try and squeeze our life around our business or around our work. And yeah. so f seize the opportunities that you can to say, how do I actually get clear on the life that I want? And then how do I have the business or my career support that? Mm -hmm. in a much more intentional way. So like, yeah, some nights I, I teach classes at night. So like I have our Moneymakers Academy as a Q&A, for instance. We actually do a money date too um, each month. So like we all sit down and like they have to go do their, their stuff, you know, to track their money. And everybody does this. You have like 50 people all on little videos on Zoom, all tracking their money. It's awesome. <laughs> There's nothing like it to like not feel alone doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm on and I'm answering their questions. So anyway, I choose to do that on um, Thursday night a month. And on Thursday mornings, I take my daughter to gym class, the two-year-old. Right. Right. And so I don't get to work till 1030. But like, I'm okay with that. Mm, you know, yeah. I'd probably be okay with it and not even having to do the nighttime, but it kind of all evens out to me. But let me ask you this, because yeah. um, we all started out of college or not college and, and it, whether it matters or not. And then we, you know, had to burn the midnight oil, get to a part. We understood whether it was for the the corporate job or for our businesses and then hit this point where like, ah, we, we have a stride and, and we're good. Now, mm -hmm. um, I strongly believe in what you're saying about this like quality of life and making sure that you don't run yourself into the ground. But there was a point where that was absolutely necessary. And, mm -hmm. you know, like how do you differentiate like okay, I could take my foot off the gas a little bit and, you know, go to the gym after work. Or mm -hmm. um, I want to take my foot off the gas, but I have to get here, you know, and, and that could even be dangerous in and of itself because here is always a moving target. Right. So so I think that, that people rarely stop to ask themselves the question, is this the time that I have to have the pedal to the metal? Hmm. I think that that... So I was an accountant, you know, I mean, we were an auditor. So, you know, I was in the auditing firm. And so there was a busy season. So it was understood that in the busy season, you're going to put the pedal to the metal. You're going to be working late. You're going to be working weekends. But then when it wasn't a busy season, it was like, okay, it's okay to ease up. And to recognize that there are times in your life when you want to be pushing harder and you're running. And then there are other times like you're sprinting. And then there are other times where you can just walk or you can just mm. run. Like you don't have to be sprinting all the time. If you find yourself sprinting all the time, it probably takes you back to that early belief, right? So this is where the money story mm. stuff comes in again. It probably takes you back to some reason why you feel like you have to be the one that pushes, pushes, pushes all the time or love is going to be taken away from you or yeah. something bad is going to happen. Right. Yep. Or it's it's not in the examples you were just giving, Andrew, like it doesn't even sound like it's about money. Like there it does seem like there's a little bit of the like never enough thing. Like I have to make more, make more like there's a more mm. need in there. Um, and a um, so one of my colleagues and mentors, Lynn Twist, she wrote a book called The Soul of Money. And I actually used to have a TV show and I interviewed her for the TV show. And it was kind of getting to the fact of like. A lot of times it's about understanding sufficiency is the term she uses. Right. And so where can we get that? It's enough. It's not about more. Yeah. You know, like more isn't actually going to get us more. Yeah. It's just going to maybe it might make us more tired, more frustrated, more run down, but it's not actually going to get us more. Yeah. And so 
So part of it is just bringing awareness to this whole conversation. So if you are working late, just stop for a moment and be like, okay, why am I working late? Mm -hmm. I'm working late because somebody has a deadline for me. Am I working late because that's been my identity for a long time? And maybe I could start to let go of that identity and actually be a happier person. Mm. No, is it because I want to reach a certain income goal so that then I feel like I can take X amount out of the business or, you know, take get this bonus and then go on this vacation, like get clear on why you're doing what you're doing. People are so just so busy living life that mm-hmm. they don't actually take a few minutes to look at the life they're living and say, is this really the life I want? And then they yeah. wake up they wake up at 40, at 50, at 60. And they're like, okay, time out. Like I had my as you guys know, I'm an overachiever. I had my midlife crisis at 35. I don't mean <laughs> I just had a little earlier. So that was my time where I just left corporate. And I was like, you know what? Like I am pushing hard for somebody else's goals. Mm. And these aren't really mine anymore. Like I just felt like I was checking my personality at the door. It was miserable to go into work. We were doing our fourth restructuring. The company I was working at made x-ray screening machines post 9-11. So we were super busy for that three, four years after that. And then it all slowed down and we didn't have to make machines because we had them staffed up all around the world. Right. Yeah. But when they were like, okay, put your head down and go do that job. I was like, I don't want that job. I want the job when I'm like saving the world yeah. one extra mm-hmm. machine at a time, you know? And so I took off a year and a half. And I mean, you know, to some extent, it's a good thing that I, I do what I teach and that when I started that job, I actually negotiated in some options. So that alone was a $40,000 bump when I left, right? Like mm. sort of cash in hand. So I lived for a year and I, I lived Eat, Pray, Love before it was a hit book and movie. And so I went to India for a month and I volunteered in Costa Rica and just did really had to step away from what I was doing to create a new identity for myself. Mm. Because my old identity was so tied to what we're talking about. It was so tied to being an accountant. Literally, like mm. I traveled around India and they were like, what do you do? And I'm like, or who are you? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't do like, anything. I'm nobody. And that, <laughs> that, that's actually kind of refreshing. That, that, I was like, uh, you know, and then they're like, are you a wife? No. Like I was single, you know, mm. like, are you a mom? No. So it was like this, this like identity crisis, you know, at 35, like, I don't know. Who am I? What do I want to be with my life? Like mm-hmm. then I, I did a little bit of the like chicken little or whatever the, or the, the, are you my mother mm. kids book? Yeah. You know, like I would just interview and informational interview with everybody. Like, could I do what you do? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? You know, until I, (laughs) until I started to get to something that could feel like I could be me again. Mm. I did like career Mm. coaching and it was like, okay, how do I create something where I can bring the problem solving and the, um, emotional side and the networking and like the relationship building, all that stuff. And then shortly thereafter, I created this company and now we're at 10 years. And so it was about creating it in a way that melded with who I wanted to be in the world. And then I will say, you know, a lot of times, and I'm aware of it now in terms of us living our life by default so much, but by 2011, I got married and we started having trouble having kids. And I looked at the business I had created and I said, wait a second, I have this super successful business, but it takes too much of my time. I was working too hard. Mm the point we're making, right? Mm. And I hadn't had the realization, like the, I hadn't made the link yet for myself around the working hard. And I said, this isn't actually the life that I want to be leading in this next phase of my life. Right. So, um, yeah. so now, so about, I guess it's about every five years. So the first one was at 35, this was at 40. And I said, I need a different business model. 
because I didn't trust that this business I had just built for five years was going to be there if I had trouble with a pregnancy, if I wanted to be home with my kids. Mm. And so then I took a step back and I hired a different coach. Like I, I'm a firm believer in shortening your learning curve and having somebody teach you what you need to know. Right. Like yeah. I think we don't have the mindset and the skill set we need around money. So go learn it. And it, you know, it's so funny you people. bring that up is because so I work, at least in the computer field, like a lot of people are like, oh, I have to figure this out myself. And they'll spend like three hours solving this problem where they could have just turned to the right, asked the person and got the solution in five minutes and everyone right. would have been happier. Right. Totally. And but again, yeah. it's that proving it's like, mm. I got to figure it out. I have to be the one. And I um, uh, so I totally totally changed around my business and started creating online courses. So then I have, um, now I have three online courses that are more automated that are eight week courses. And then I, I created four courses in 2012 and launched my book. And then I was pregnant in December. So something in me was like, okay, great. You have the structure now. Mm. Now you're ready to go birth a baby. <laughs> 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 2013, I had a baby. 2014, I got pregnant. 2015, I had a, uh, another baby. And then 2016, I birthed a, a new program. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's got to be ready before the body is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think that it, um, you know, I have a lot of compassion for people who um, – kind of find themselves overwhelmed or like stressed about money. Cause that mm. was certainly me at different points in my life. And even my dad actually had a stroke when I was 21. And so by 28, I had, I became family CFO at 21. I mean, most people don't want that job ever, let alone at 21. And so I pieced things together. But by the time I got to 28, I had created this destructive rinse and repeat cycle that that wasn't actually supporting me and was totally stressing me out. And then my sister one day just asked me like, how are things going? Very innocuous question. And I, I nearly broke down. <laughs> I was like, um, give me the weekend. I said, you know, let, so I came home Friday night and then I put together all my bills and mail and it was literally taller than I was at the, at my dining room table. It's mm. one of the scariest things to do. And she was right. It was a lot. Like we had eight bank accounts, four credit cards, two properties. You could have added a partridge in a oh pear tree. And you would have been, you know, like it was just ridiculous. And so I started literally having a panic attack. What I now know is a panic attack. Like I'm pacing and I have all this self-talk. This is, you know, kind of the meaning I started to create, right? Like what happens if they find out and are they, is my dad's doctor's going to turn them down because I haven't paid their bill yet. Could he be kicked out of the nursing home? What happens in my job if they mm. find out? Mm -hmm. And so again, I, I hadn't wanted to be open and honest about what was really going on for me. And as a result, I, um, uh, I just let it all pile up. And so I had what I affectionately call my come to Jesus moment, which is funny because I'm Jewish and from New York, <laughs> but, um, but it works and it makes me, it lightens it up a little bit for me to say, is this the life that I really want? Do I want to keep avoiding and being overwhelmed and getting owned by my money or instead step up, face it and own my money? You know, and I think that 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 understanding has really helped shape a lot. And I think that that it all circles back to that. Right. Like it was like I had a moment and we all have a moment. We all have those pivotal money moments for ourselves where we can make choices. And we may have made one choice in the past, but we all have a choice today. Like you could literally make this like mark this day in your calendar. And when you said, you know what? I'm going to take action on what I'm hearing on this Listen Money Matters podcast, and I'm going to look at my money 
open my bills, pay off my debt, like do the one thing that you've been avoiding because now you can recognize how you can shift your money destiny, how you can take control yourself. Yeah. So I know we've gone for about an hour here, but I'm sure that there are people out there that want to do this. So you mentioned that you've made a bunch of courses and you just launched one this year. So where can people go to start getting involved, learning more from you, getting in contact with you, all those kind of things. Awesome. Thanks, Thomas. So I would say take advantage of the fact that like right now I am launching this online free course for you, this free workshop called the Shift Your Money Destiny Workshop. And in the first lesson, you can take a money IQ quiz and figure out like what are the holes that I need to address specifically. And then in the second lesson, I walk you through in more detail and I give you some more examples of how to rewrite your money story. So jump into that. And then the third one, I actually even give you a roadmap that shows you what are the actual skills I need to learn to get, you know, for you to get from where you are to where you want to be. So I'd say jump into that. That's at ownyourmoney.com forward slash listen for mm -hmm. our listeners today. And then um, beyond that, I am at Own Your Money Everywhere. I am like Own Your Money on the web. So I'm at Own Your Money on Twitter. I'm ownyourmoney.com. Got a consistent branding for everybody, right? Um, yeah. On the on my website, on Facebook, I'm facebook.com forward slash Own Your Money. And, and I would say start with this free workshop. Let's get you going, right? Mm -hmm. Let's figure out what's your money IQ? What, what are some of these aspects of of your money story. And I get that we went kind of deep today. So it's okay if you're not quite ready to go there immediately, but yeah. the more that you can start to even have an awareness about some of these beliefs and some of these events, then they don't have to unconsciously control you in the same kind of way. And so yeah. it starts to really put the power back in your hands. Yeah, exactly. So. Cool. Well, we will have all of those linked up in the show notes so people can't remember all the URLs, they'll be available to click in our show notes, listenmoneymatters.com slash show. Uh, or as I guess as Andrew said, if you just tap on his face in your podcast app, <laughs> you'll probably see all those links there. Yeah. I if have you tap on my on face, my phone, actually. I don't know what happens if you tap on my face. Your phone sprouts legs and runs away, actually. Something like that. <laughs> really hard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah, you. This has so been really much. helpful because I mean, I deal with a lot of the same things the whole working hard same. and all that kind of stuff, you know? And I think a lot, a lot of the times for me, it's just like, oh, well, my peers work hard or the other business owners I know work hard. So therefore, I must do the same thing. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and so some of it is just trying to ask yourself better questions. Yeah. So I'll literally ask myself, how can I do this even easier? Or mm -hmm. what's a faster way for me to do this? Because your MO is going to be like, what's the hardest way I can do this? And this is why we, I think a lot of people overcomplicate money. It's mm. not that hard. It's like money yep. comes in and money goes out. Write it down. Tide comes in, tide comes out. Can't explain yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then there's that. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for coming Thank on you. the show. I think people are going to really enjoy this episode. Guys, if you uh, if you have questions about this or anything else related to your money, you can email us. We're listenmoneymatters at gmail.com or you can go send questions to Belinda directly on any of her social pages or her website. And uh, you can also find all of our favorite money management resources and books we recommend and all sorts of other cool, awesome tools at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. So I think that's all we've got. Andrew doesn't have an expectant look on his face, so I don't think he has anything to interject with this time. <laughs> well, this thank you so smile. much. Yeah. <laughs> and we will see you in next week's episode. Later. Later, man. Later.
please tell your friends about this show.